Well, friends, I wanted to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to what might be the easiest verse in the whole Bible to find. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's literally the first verse in the Bible. So if you don't know anything about the Bible, again, I want to welcome you. I want to remind you there's a Bible in front of you. And I want to tell you to take that Bible that's in front of you. Just turn to the very beginning. You'll find where we're going to be today. It's a new year. And now a new preaching series for this new year. And it's a series that I've chosen to call What Genesis Says About Us. I've chosen to call this series What Genesis Says About Us because it's a series that's going to be out of Genesis. And it's going to be about us. (laughs) I figured just call it what it is. Uh, From where I'm sitting, uh, one of the most striking features of our culture right now is, is widespread confusion and controversy about what it means to be a human. Who am I? Who are we? I think you can see this confusion and controversy just about everywhere if you know where to look. It's the question that's up under our biggest culture war flashpoints of the moment. You know, the issues that folks are always fighting about out in the public square. Controversies about sex and gender and marriage and race and racism and when life begins and who has the right to end it. All of these controversies stem from from the question of what it means to be a human and who has the right to say. And these questions are not just political. These These are deeply personal questions. There's nothing more personal than to know who you are and what your value really is. The question of what it means to be a human lies up underneath our our culture's obsession with self-knowledge and self-acceptance and self-improvement. If you do a quick scan of Amazon's top 100 books for right now, like as of today, like I did, once you pull out all the novels and the cookbooks and the children's books, you'll find a ton of books with, with titles, subtitles like Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life or Release self-doubt and build self-compassion and embrace who you are. Recently, I came across the work of a Polish sociologist with an awesome name of Zygmunt Bauman. Zygmunt. Not every day you meet a Zygmunt. Uh, I, I was introduced to this guy through some other books that I had been reading and found him just be so insightful on the explosion of interest and identity that we've seen, especially in the Western cu- cultures like ours over the last several decades. Uh, identity I didn't realize before looking to him, identity as, as a concept or as a word even wasn't often used before the last few decades. And the fact that it's everywhere now and that all of us are talking about it, according to Bauman, is actually not a sign that things are getting better. It, he sees that our, our cultural obsession, as he calls it, as an example of a general rule that things are only ever noticed, quote, when they vanish, go bust, or fall out of joint. You know what he means? I basically never talk about my back. But once every, well, it used to be once every like four or five years. Now it's about once every year when I'm doing something as simple as standing behind a pulpit, I'll just feel it go. And when it goes, I go. I double over. I go down. I'm in pain for the next several weeks, if not months. And, you know, it's always during that time that if you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to lead with my back. You know, in normal times, I'm probably never going to mention it. I don't even really think about it. When my back's hurting, I'm thinking about all the core exercises that I'm going to do to make sure that that never happens to me again. And as soon as my back's not hurting again, I go right back to the sedentary lifestyle I've come so accustomed to and love so much. We talk about what isn't working. We talk about where we're insecure. Bowman says, one thinks of identity whenever one is not sure where one belongs. 
Identity is a name given to the escape sought from that uncertainty. Isn't that something? I think a big reason our society is strained out there and a big reason many of us as individuals are struggling in the ways that we are is that we're not quite sure what it means to be human. No questions matter more than these do. They're questions a lot of us are asking. They're questions pressed on us, not just by what we're going through for ourselves, but by the kinds of things that are coming up in our work or the kinds of things our kids are bringing home from school. And these, thanks be to God, these questions are questions about which the Bible has a ton to say. So much to teach us about this this issue that we're weighed down by and preoccupied with now. We're going to spend the next few months in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 because I believe the best place to see what the Bible says about what it means to be human is right there at the very beginning of the whole thing. The first three chapters of the first book of the Bible lay out the most fundamental truths about what it means to be a human being. And before we get into sermon number one this morning, I want to say a couple quick things about what to expect from the series that will take us through most of the spring from now until near the end of April. This is going to be a series that's a little bit different from the normal kinds of sermon series that I hope you'll always expect here. What you might call our bread and butter diet as a church. As the main diet for our church on these, during our sermons on Sunday mornings, we're, we're firmly committed to sermons that go verse by verse through sections of the Bible. That just take the Bible as it comes and, and let the Bible set the agenda for what we're going to think about together and, 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 and for what we need at that time. That practice is not just good for us. It honors God. It assumes that God is the one who inspired the words of these books, that he put them together the way he wanted them to be put together, and that we always need it even when we don't know exactly why in that moment. That sometimes it's just coming to that next section we never would have pulled out of thin air. That we get exactly the hope and encouragement that we needed for that week. We believe that and that's why that's our normal practice. But, but sometimes it can be helpful to come to the Bible with big questions that we're asking. Based on the specific times that we're living in. To get the clarity and the guidance that we know we need. This is going to be a series more like that. Every sermon that I preach in the series is going to be anchored in a passage from Genesis 1 to 3. But I'm not going to be trying to unpack every single verse in those three chapters. And I won't be trying to do that directly, in order, verse by verse in each case. And, and sometimes I'll be coming back over verses we've already looked at over and over again through different sermons just to pull out some of the different things we need to notice about them. Here's how I want you to think about my role as a preacher in a series like this one. Think about me as a kind of docent at, a, at an art museum. If you've ever been to an art museum like the Frist, and you've ever gone on one of those tours, and if you haven't, I recommend it if you're ignorant about art like me and you want to learn. But if you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll come up to a big painting up on a wall, and if you're ignorant like me, you have no idea what you're looking at. And what you're looking at is super intentional and multi-layered, tons of detail. What you need is somebody who does know what they're looking at to stand back with you at the big picture and just point stuff out. There's no way to capture it all in one big glance. You need someone pulling out the things that you should notice. Look at what he did with the light over here, with that patch of color over there. You need someone who can say, look at how what's going on in this painting compares to what's going on in those paintings over there from a different time in a different place. That's going to be my role in, in looking at these three wonderful chapters. They are a masterpiece. They are full of detail, far more than we could ever exhaust in this series. 
I want to stand back and look at them with you and just point to you to things that we need to get from these three chapters that will help us know who we are as God made us to be and help us as Christians to hold out the tremendous hope that comes from knowing who we are before God, a hope that is available to anyone who will accept it, and a hope that, that we're responsible to offer with clarity and conviction to anyone who will listen. Now, for this moment, for this morning, we begin in the beginning. I've asked you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now I want to ask you, if you're able, to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read this verse to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. In the Bible, the question of what it means to be a human begins not with us humans, but with God. The question of what it means to be a human, according to the Bible, begins not with us humans, but with the God who made us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And to set up the whole series, what I want to do with the minutes we have left to us this morning is think with you about this one simple verse and it's three huge implications for who we are. One simple verse with three huge implications for who we are. Here's number one. Genesis 1-1 means, first of all, we are not God. Before I can know who I am as Matt McCullough, I have to know there is a God out there and I'm not him. Think of Genesis 1-1 as laying down this bright and uncrossable line in the world. A fundamental difference that's more important than any other difference. Before it matters that I'm an Auburn fan and not a Bama fan. A Southerner and not a Westerner or a Northerner. Before it matters that I'm an American and not a Frenchman. A man and not a woman. A human and not a cat or a dog. It matters that I'm a creature and not the creator. That's the primary difference in all the world. Now, maybe that sounds super obvious. If I had to guess, I'd guess that not even one of you sitting out there came in here this morning thinking that you were God. But from the perspective of the Bible, the difference between God and ourselves is all too easy to forget in practice, even if we would never admit to it with our words. And I think you can see this tendency to forget the difference between God and us play out and how we tend to talk about our identity as humans. I think you can see it all through that kind of, that kind of talk. Let me give you an example. My sense is that, that when we take up the question of who we are, we put most of our energy into nailing down what sets us off from other people. The energy and, and what we're drawn most into is, is our unique experiences, making sense of them and how they affect us. Our unique hopes and dreams, what we want out of life. We tend to think along the lines that typically show up in a Twitter bio. You know, the basics are typically going to be where you live, where you come from, what you do, maybe what you've accomplished, maybe your personality type or your family status. You know, if I had a Twitter bio, it might read something like Historic Edgefield, that's where I live, Go Doors. That's where I went to school. Husband, because I am one. Father, pastor, whatever Myers-Briggs letters my friends are always trying to assign me, their Enneagram numbers or what have you. It might have something like that in there. The idea is play up that package of attributes that helps you stand out from the crowd. That's what that's for. 
And the Bible does not deny the uniqueness of every human being. It, it, it absolutely doesn't. You are irreplaceable. There is no one else like you. And God gets glory from the fact that he made you as you and not as someone else. His creativity as a creator is on display in every human being that's ever lived. And they aren't all just members of a set. But the Bible always pulls our focus out of the details of what makes me me. On what sets me apart from other people. And puts our focus on God who is not like us. And on what we share with all other people everywhere. There's no question that the, the, the massive weight of the Bible's focus falls on what we share with all of us. And, and, and what, we, what we don't share with God. That's the first major implication of Genesis 1-1 here this morning, friends. In the beginning, God was already there when we weren't. He created the heavens and the earth. In other words, he created everything that isn't him. And to know ourselves, to know what it means to be human, we have to start with him. And that leads to point number two. The second huge implication from Genesis 1-1 about what it means to be human, about who we are, is this. We owe our lives to God. The first one is we are not God. The second one is we owe our lives to God. I said before that the Bible draws this bright and shining light between God and everything else, between the creator and all of his creatures. And now let me take you one step further into that difference. What it is that sets off one side of that bright line from the other side of that bright line. On one side, what you've got is God. He just is. He just exists. In Genesis terms, in the beginning, God was already there he was there in the beginning because he didn't actually have a beginning he can't not exist he's part of the reality that would carry on without him he's not part of this reality that would carry on without him where we just like miss him and wish that he was there but we just make the best of it and carry on he's not like that he is the ultimate reality he just is and I know, I know at this point, it sounds like I'm probably just like piling words on top of one another. I'm just saying things and it's so hard to get your mind about, around what it even means. That's partly because God is holy. He is not like anything else. We can't nail him down with our language. We can't compare him to anything else in our experience. He just is. And it stretches our minds because nothing could possibly contain a being like this one. Certainly not my ability to comprehend him. Or to put it in God's own words, he is the great I am. Turn in your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 3. It's one of the most clear and powerful statements from God about who he is in all of the Bible. It comes right in the middle of the story, right near the beginning rather, of the story of the Exodus. This is the story that's set up by Israel, God's own people, in bondage in Egypt. They groan under the strain of their labor, and God hears them. He knows what's going on, and he comes down to show Pharaoh who these people really belong to. When he comes down to announce what he's going to do, he comes into the middle of nowhere to a man shepherding somebody else's sheep in a bush that looks like it's burning but never burns up because he's God. And he can speak however he wants to. He comes to Moses and tells Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses naturally needs some convincing. Moses has been to Egypt. He's been around the palace where Pharaoh lives. He knows how powerful that king is. 
he hears this voice promising he's going to be with him, but he needs to know who it is that'll be with him. I mean, Moses knows he's not up to delivering Israel from Egypt. He just tried to save one guy who was getting beat up by an Egyptian. He killed that guy and had to run for his life. He can't get rid of the whole oppressive system. And it's nice that God says he'll be with them, but, but Moses got to be thinking, why should I trust that God can get this job done? I mean, if you're going up against a tank and a kid with a Nerf gun says he's with you, that's nice to know. I mean, it's a, a, a nice sentiment, I guess, but it isn't terribly useful. Moses wants credentials. And it kind of, his response to God kind of reads like a passive-aggressive jab. Like, like asking for a friend here, but, but when I go, who shall I tell them sent me to them? You know, just hypothetically, they might want to know this. Who are you anyway? And the Lord answers him in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's admittedly a really strange way to answer a question about what your name is. And there's no breakthrough insight from the historical background that makes that name any clearer. The word God uses, we're translating here, I am, is, is a, a firm form of the verb to be. But it's not a label. It's not a personal name that's known anywhere else. And it's not crystal clear all that he meant by that name. But one thing that he meant is crystal clear. At the bedrock level, he's claiming that he, as God, just is. He just exists. He's the fundamental reality behind everything else that is. And he doesn't depend on, nor could he be threatened by, anything else that exists. When you go to Pharaoh, you go with the God who can't be beat. The God who's absolutely free. That's on one side of that bright line between God and us. The God who is. I am. And on the other side of that bright line is everything else. Where God just simply exists, everything else exists because. Because in the beginning, God, who is, decided to create the heavens and the earth and every human that's ever walked on earth, including me and you. Our lives, friends, are just pure gift, free and unearned. And we owe our lives completely to him. Do you ever stop and think about how stunning it is to be alive I mean, given the vast scale of the history of the universe, you and me not being here, that's what's normal. <laughs> it's normal for us not to be here. That we're here at all is shockingly unusual. The other day, me and Benji were on a hike and we found a rock with a bunch of fossils in it. You can find these all over at our wonderful Tennessee State Parks. If you ever find one, I encourage you to just sit there and look at it for a second and think. How long did it take for that limestone to form around those shells? How long has that rock been sitting there in that earth before we came along to discover it? And when someday, one way or another, that rock comes off the shelf it's sitting on now and ends up back in the earth that it belongs to, 
how long will it sit there after we're dead and gone? Our lives are just so brief. Such a brief part of something so much bigger than we are. And yet here we are. Here I stand. There you sit on a church pew in 2022. That is stunning. And think about all the forces that your life depends on. That you have absolutely no control over and can't possibly take credit for. I had no say in being born. Much less being born to a hospitable and safe environment on a planet conducive to my life. With food given to me and medical care. You know, on this world that I didn't create. I learned a while back that oxygen I depend on comes from seagrass I didn't know about. That feeds turtles that would eat it all and kill me if it weren't for sharks who chase them, keep them moving around so they don't wipe out the supply. Do you know that? My life, your life, at every level, and every other life on earth, it's completely dependent, derived, enmeshed in a bunch of forces you can't take credit for and can't hope to control. And we can't possibly have a clear view of ourselves of who we are, of what it means to be human, unless we first absorb the shock that we are in the first place. We can't assume that God just is. We are because he decided to make us. And it's all there in Psalm 100 that we read together just a few moments ago. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What does Genesis 1-1 tell us about who we are? It tells us we are not God. That's the first thing. And that we owe our lives to God. That's the second thing. And that brings me to the final huge implication from Genesis 1-1 about who we are. And this is the starting block for the rest of our series on what it means to be human. Because we're not God, because we owe our lives to God completely, Implication number three, we are defined by God. Only God can tell us what it means to be human. That's what Genesis 1-1 means for who we are. Only God can tell us what it means to be human. What does the God who created the heavens and the earth and every one of us tell us about what it means to be human? There's the question we'll spend this spring answering together. We're going to be looking at this week by week at at how God made us and, and how he's defined us in his word. We're going to look first at the way he designed us to be, the blueprint for our lives as part of a good world that he created, not because he needed anything, not because he was missing something, not because he needed to exploit us from in some way or another, but just for sheerly the uncontainable love that is in God. He overflowed into us and, and we are because he wanted us to be. We'll talk about the dignity and the purpose that comes from being made in his image. A a dignity and a purpose that that you won't find anywhere else in all of creation. We'll see how he made us male and female. And we'll see his purpose for marriage and sexuality. We'll, We'll also take an honest look at how sin affects who we are. Where sin comes from. How it distorts us. What consequences it's brought into our lives and into the world around us. And we'll finish up the series with, with news that's even more shocking than life itself. 
We'll finish our series with news that our creator, the one fundamentally different from everything else that he made, has crossed that bright and shining line and entered the world that he made so that he could fulfill for us a purpose we had failed to meet ourselves. That's where we're headed together in the next weeks to come. And before we get into it, before we go any further, as we wrap up this morning, I want to level with you. If you come along with us on this journey through Genesis chapter, chapter 1 to 3, I want to warn you to expect a challenge and promise you to expect some badly needed comfort. Expect a challenge and some comfort. First, let me be honest with you about the challenge. This view about how we know who we are, that we are not God, that we, are, we owe our lives to him, and that means God gets to define who we are. That view has always set Christians up against some major headwinds in the cultures around them. From the very beginning, that has been a unique and minority report compared to the, the major views around those who have believed what Genesis 1 to 3 tells us. I mean, for most of history and most of the world, folks came to know who they are and, and what their lives are supposed to be about by looking to their communities and their families. They looked around at the social institutions around them. That's how they knew their place. That's where they found out what was expected and leaned into it or away from it. You knew who you were by looking around. For most of us living right now, when and where we do, there's an entirely different headwind blowing against Genesis 1-1. Today, in the books and the movies and the podcasts and the classrooms and the t-shirts and the posters and pretty much anywhere else you might look, you're much more likely to be told that if you want to know who you are, you got to look inside yourself. And people before and in other parts of the world, they would have looked around and taken their cues from what others expected of them. Here, we're much more likely to say, what others expect of me is a threat to me, actually. That might, that might get in my way. If I want to know who I am and what I'm supposed to be, I have to look inside because no one else can tell me that. Follow your heart. You do you. I saw a great example of this way of thinking about who we are the other day in a, a Guardian magazine interview with the best-selling author Glennon Doyle. Uh, Doyle has written a couple of really, really like top of the charts level best-selling memoirs because she is an amazing writer. The first one of these memoirs told the story of her painful recovery of her marriage after her husband's infidelity. The second memoir tells the story of her decision to end her marriage to her husband and marry uh, U.S. women's national team soccer star Abby Wambach. Talking about her, her decisions, how she, how she got there, the way that her life evolved for her. She said in this interview that she believes she was once where so many people are now. Looking around at people around her, she says she sees people everywhere in chains. But that they can free themselves if they will. They just have to, as she puts it, realize that they can think outside the box. Or as she puts it elsewhere, they can order their lives off the menu. Doyle says, my sexuality, my faith, my working life, my views about gender, my mothering, my daughtering. I have to go off menu with all these in all these areas of my life, I have to go off the menu to find what fits for me. You can see why she's such a successful writer. What a metaphor, off the menu. You see what she means by that? The assumption is that there is a menu that's supplied by whoever runs the restaurant. And I see the choices there, but I, those are not choices that I'm drawn to. Those choices don't speak to me. They don't reflect me. I'm gonna have to go off the menu I'm going to have to create my own choices, define my own reality. 
How do you know who you are? How do you know what it means to be human? Well, that, that'll be up to you. Now, if we start with Genesis 1.1, if we believe that, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, if we believe that we are not God and that we owe our lives to God, then on the one hand, we're going to stand right there with Glennon Doyle and say, she's right. Nobody out there has the right to tell me who I am. They are not God. So I can't know who I am just because of what my parents expected of me or just because of what my teachers told me I, w- I was supposed to be. I-, I can't look outside in this world to know who I am. They don't have the right. She's right about that. But if we start with Genesis 1-1, we'll also have to say, I don't have the right to define who I am either because I'm not God. And her off-the-menu approach takes life as if it isn't a shocking gift, as if it isn't a gift we had nothing to do with and can't possibly sustain on our own. And I think that that off-menu approach kind of assumes that, that I am in a way that God is. My existence is, a, is just de facto. It's necessary. It just is. And now I can decide what to do with it. Genesis 1-1 says, no, your existence is a shock. You had nothing to do with it. And even now, at every moment, it depends completely on the gratuitous offering of someone else to you, something you could never pay for. And if that's true, what we say about who we are doesn't really matter that much. What matters is what God says about who we are. Who am I to him? What does he say about what it means to be human? That, that will be the challenge that Genesis 1 to 3 will confront us with every week in our time and place. I want you to know that in a, ahead of time and be ready for it so we can face it together. And maybe that challenge already feels a bit jarring to you. Maybe this biblical approach to what it means to be human feels a little bit like a straitjacket. And off the menu approach sounds a lot more promising. If that's what you're feeling, I want to promise you that there is a tremendous comfort on the backside of this challenge that I look forward to showing you week after week all spring. There is tremendous comfort on the backside of this challenge to our freedom to define who we are for ourselves. Remember the sociologist with the cool name Zygmunt? His focus is on the deep insecurity that's lurking behind our obsession with identity. He said, he said, we've approached identity building as if the material we've got to work with as we build who we are is like sand on a beach. There's a lot to like about building with sand. You can do whatever you want to with it. As long as you get the right density, you add the right amount of water, you got the right like, tools to shape it into the castle walls or whatever, sand listens to you. You decide based on your Creativity and your power, how big it's going to be and what it's going to look like. Sand is alluring in a way. But, Bauman says, the real problem is not how to build an identity, but how to preserve it. Whatever, listen to this, friends, whatever you may build in the sand is unlikely to be a castle. Ordering off menu is quite literally a devil's bargain. You bite that apple, it will leave you exposed and fragile and insecure about who you are. 
But the Bible offers us an alternative, a one you won't find anywhere else. Through the way that God made us and through what Jesus has done to redeem us, God has offered to every one of you an identity so firm, so fixed that nothing can shake it. An identity rooted in his love because even though you are not God, he loves you and nothing can separate you from his love. If you will be united to Christ and stand in him and not on your own. This is an identity you don't have to prove. It's an identity you don't have to protect. You just have to receive it in the same way you received your lives to begin with as a gift of pure grace from God. And I want to pray now that the Lord will give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to this, to this message that we will consider together over these next weeks. And as I do, I'm also asking you to pray that the Lord will use these weeks together in his word to shape us according to the mold he has given to us in his word. Let's pray together now. Holy Father, we owe everything to you. You are good. And we ask that you would help us through this time together in your word over these next weeks to recognize, to embrace, and to savor your goodness more deeply than we ever have before. We want lives that honor you. We thank you you've made it clear what those lives look like. And we pray that by your spirit working through your word, you would shape us into those people. If you don't, we have no hope. We won't even receive the words that you've said, much less learn from them. And so we come to you to keep on working on us. The God who made us, we ask you to remake us in the image of your son Jesus for your glory. And we pray in his name, amen.